Hello, welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who's toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I talk to the people who make travelling and eating such a delicious adventure. Hey there and welcome to another episode of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. I always really enjoy chatting with chefs because I'm so intrigued about what goes on in the background of restaurants, those stories that we as diners never get to hear. Today I'm talking with one of my favourites, Ben Williamson, a chef who is as modest as he is talented. Ben's a partner in the Any Day Venues group who owns some of Brisbane's most seminal restaurants, including Agnes, which was recently awarded Australian Gourmet Traveller Best Restaurant in Australia. Yay! as well as Bianca, which is a much-loved Italian trattoria, Same Same, Honto, and the utterly fabulous Agnes Bakery. Today, we're going to talk all things food, of course, including where he goes out to eat, influences, reviews, and awards, and the effect that they can have on your business, restaurant designs, what we love and what we hate, future food trends, Ben's time traveling the Middle East, and much more. So let's get to it. Thanks for joining me, Ben. Yeah, pleasure. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. I've always been a long-term fan listening to, uh, to your podcast, Nat, so it's, it's nice to finally be on it. Oh, thank you. Ben, I believe you're a Perth boy. Tell us about growing up there and what inspired you to become a chef. It was, it was great. I spent my first 18 years in Perth, but I actually grew up in the northern suburbs of Perth mm. in a suburb called Corrine, which is sort of a couple of suburbs inland from Trigg Beach, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Perth's known for its beautiful beaches, but I kind of grew up a bit of a beach rat, I suppose. I was, you know, always on the, on the bike with the bodyboard going down and, <laughs> and getting into the water early and... That was probably my early life. And as far as getting into cooking goes, I think like most chefs, I think I hit a point at school where paying attention in class wasn't my strong point. <laughs> I think I was very easily distracted often by, by many, many things and then often coming up with incredibly creative ways to distract myself and everybody <laughs> else around me. So my, I, I remember having a sit down with my mother and, and she just said, you know, you've really got to find something that you're going to get you to do in life and what is it mm. that you're interested in doing i remember just thinking about it and saying i actually quite like home economics and cooking and I, you know with time and memory i'm not sure why i said it or how i got to that but from there i kind of just really started to sink my teeth into that side of things mm. i think it was almost like a, a switch had gone inside me and it was like right well this is what you're going to do mm. and this is how we're going to tackle it and then part of it i think might have come from like like a lot of people that have the story as well, my grandmother having Scottish lineage, she was constantly in the kitchen. And whenever I was not at school and I was sick or for whatever reason I was staying with my grandmother, she was just in the kitchen constantly. And I used to get in there with her, you know, not making anything crazy, but you know, scones were always in the oven and chicken soup. Or there was, you know, those classic old style things, but she did them really, really well. And she did them with a lot of care and love. And she was a massive feeder as well and constantly trying to get you to eat it but it was I I just think I remember I I spent a lot of time in the kitchen with her and I think Mm. that probably was another one of the progenitors and Mm. then yeah then I just found my way getting into kitchens I think I started I left left school somewhere in grade 10 and then got a job as a kitchen hand in a resort sort of a a high-end golf club like an exclusive golf club it was very close to my house where I grew Mm. up and 
I started washing dishes for them and then they, they offered me a job and the rest of it is history. You're lucky that you did find your passion. I think I was probably just looking for whatever Something. my niche was, yeah, <laughs> whatever it was. But once I'd made my mind up and lapsed onto it, I went for it. But then the other thing is when, when you actually start to get into the kitchens, I mean, like a lot of people, what I was saying earlier about being incredibly creative in ways to distract myself and others. I think the kitchen was just the perfect environment for that. Yeah. And that was something that I discovered pretty early in the game. And I don't think, I was never diagnosed with ADHD mm. or anything like that, but I think I probably had a heavy hand in it and I probably <laughs> still do. But it's, yeah, the kid, cooking, cookery seems to be a very good application mm. for people that are that way wired. It makes sense. Yeah. There's the there's the tactile aspect of it as well as the you know the creative stuff. So it makes sense that it would appeal to to people who are neurodivergent. Yeah, de- definitely. And it's you know lots of very small, intense jobs constantly. Mm. And so mm. you never well. And the one I have the thing I always found difficult is when you're doing a, a lot of mm. something for an extended period. I always found that very hard. But that's something you can't escape in kitchens either. But I, I think I got very good at avoiding those as well. I <laughs> <laughs> believe. <laughs> I believe you then got a job in the Middle East. What did you learn about food while you were working there? I learned a ton about food in the Middle mm-hmm. East, but it wasn't in a conventional way. And finding yeah. my way over there was an interesting path in itself. It was you know, I, le- I left Perth when I was about 20 years old and then I moved to Sydney. I followed a girlfriend over there that mm-hmm. you do back then. But she, yeah, that, that lasted for a couple of years in Sydney and then we broke up and, you know, I was working pretty tirelessly in a hotel, in, in a restaurant, in a hotel in Double Bay. And then my sister's boyfriend, actually, who she'd been with for a while and I was living with in Sydney for a bit, he used to be an in-flight chef for ANSET Australia. And then after the collapse of ANSET, back in the day, Gulf Air picked up the management from ANSET based out of Bahrain and they adopted the in-flight chef program. And he just called me one day and said, what are you, what are you doing? They're recruiting in Sydney and, you know, you'd love this job. Just get out. I think I was 24 at the time. Yeah. And he said, just come and, come and travel the world on someone else's dime. But... What I found was that by getting over there and working, it was less what I learned in the kitchens in mm. the Middle East because I wasn't in the kitchen a whole lot. There was a little bit of menu design associated with it with what we're doing in the planes, but it was mainly onboard those planes for first-class customers and mm-hmm. tailoring a menu around them based off a pantry that would be put together for you. But I learned a ton. Basically, the airline owned a couple of apartment blocks and they put up all the chefs together in these apartment blocks. And so... You'd have an entire block of apartments with two people living in each one. So there was probably 40 apartments in the block. So 80 chefs all in the oh. same apartment block. Yeah, it sounds threatening, doesn't it, in a way? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, what it was was, you, you know, we had, there were chefs from Morocco. There were chefs from Malta, Italy, like mm. all over the world that were all living in this block. And we're all mates and we all knew each other. We didn't fly together directly, but it was basically an open-door policy. And I learned so much just from cooking in the kitchens, you know, making, we would make lunch for each other, we would make dinner for each other. And it was mm. all a bit of a party, to be honest. And But I, I learned tons about what cooking meant to them from their hearts when they were cooking with their guards down and they weren't really trying to impress anybody. They were just cooking the things that they thought were delicious yeah. or the things they had at home. And I learned a ton from that. Um, and then also learned, the travel was the other part of it. And, you know, we traveled quite extensively throughout the Middle East from North Africa and Morocco and... Tunisia and Lebanon, you name it, Saudi Arabia. And so every time we'd go, we'd often have layovers for 24 hours more. And, you know, you'd just get out in the streets and, and eat the local food. That was the way. And all the crew that were there, they would have been doing it for years and the crew would hang out together and they would know all the local joints to go to. And I think 
what that did for me was it taught me a very regional aspect of how Middle Eastern food works mm. because I think to call it Middle Eastern cuisine is such a broad generalisation. Yes. There's so many different niches and pockets and different yeah. parts of it, you know, and history and nods to that and how it ties together that it, it gave me a really good perspective on those things and how the flavours tie together and, and why they work. Mm. Which, of course, served you very well when you came back and you settled in Brisbane and you first worked for some of the city's best restaurants and then went yeah. on to Gerard's Bistro, which, despite the name, was actually championing Middle Eastern food and that kind of Middle Eastern food from, from all those different countries with their subtle and often quite varied differences. Given the fact that I think Brisbane at that time, Australia in general, perhaps we expect Middle Eastern food, we, we kind of lump it in with this ridiculous term of ethnic food and we expect it to be cheap. How did you set about educating diners on the subtleties of the cuisine and the fact that they were going to have to pay more for it. Yeah, well, that, I guess that was the big challenge. And look, my, my strategy with Gerard's from the beginning, and actually the story of how it came together is is kind of funny in its own way, that it, it sort of just fell out of the sky that, you know, I was working, I was running the Euro at the time, which is the offshoot from Urbane when Kim Machen was in charge of the kitchen there. And I have a mutual friend that put me in touch with the Moobrax who were looking to open Gerard's. We just had a conversation and they, you know, Gerard's was opening. I didn't know what it was called at the time. I just knew they wanted to open a restaurant. They were looking for a chef and we had a conversation and sitting with Johnny, he was like, you know, this restaurant can be anything, like whatever you really want to cook and whatever you want to do, we can tailor it in that way to suit your style. And I thought that was a great thing to start. And then he started telling me that they actually had Greg Maloof lined up to run the restaurant, but mm. it had fallen through and he'd accepted the job in London, which he went on to do at the time. And then it triggered something for me. And I just thought, huh, mm. Middle Eastern food. Yeah, no, we really nobody's done that in Brisbane well and yeah you know if Greg's on the way out to London he's the godfather of that here and there's no one that's really doing anything new and fresh in that cuisine and then I sort of took that on but I didn't say anything at the time and I, I walked away from the meeting with Johnny and I thought to myself we could really make a thing of this and then I think I got back home and I dumped down two A4 pages just full of dishes that just all mm. sort of poured out of tying together what I'd already learned in, you know, in the Urbane and Euro kitchen and the other kitchens I've been in beforehand and then tying in those techniques with some Middle Eastern flavours and profiles using spice and whatnot. But yeah, I, th I think that to, to tie it back into your original question was my approach from the beginning was not to do something super traditional. It was to create something that was modern and new from my, my roots of very much Anglo-Saxon. So I didn't want to make claim to somebody else's mm. culture essentially that yeah. that was pretty front of mind for me and so i thought what i'll do is i'll just my experiences that i had when i was traveling i'll tie those into what i already know and then create something new and fresh and so that that was the idea from the beginning and i, I remember looking but i actually recently looked back through the very first menus and the older things that i had done there and the first menu was you know if i would never do that menu again and i think it, I think it took us time to really evolve into what to, into what Gerard's was and what we were trying to do there. But as far as how it was going to be priced and what we we're going to offer, we, we always knew, you know, jo Johnny it was Johnny and Ellie and the brothers always knew that we didn't want to be a super high-end restaurant. It, that's where the bistro came into it, that it just it needed to be not cheap, but in the, in the middle of the range for people as far as price and approachability and 
Mm. We really just wanted it to be interesting food that got people talking and gave them a new perspective, but you could approach it from any angle, from any walk of life and have a good time, you know, informed service, but very relaxed. And I, th I think that that probably came from a bit of my time at Urbane that I loved the food that Urbane was pumping out. I loved cooking it. I loved being in the kitchens with the guys that were cooking it and the push and, and all of those, you know, the long hours and the hard work that probably gone for the industry now. But it, I didn't like the experience of sitting in the restaurant. I, d I didn't like the formality of it. Mm -hmm. I didn't like how structured it was that you couldn't sort of be yourself. And, you know, you always had to go with the flow of the expectations of how that was. And so I guess Gerard's was my answer to that was that, well, we can do food that is really interesting in that way, but in a way that anybody can approach it and they can tailor it the way, they like, the way that they like. And it was certainly groundbreaking and has always, even to this day, had a fantastic reputation. But let's talk Agnes, because that was your next restaurant and you are very much immersed in that now as a business partner as well. Tell us about the inception of Agnes and congratulations, by the way, on winning the Gourmet Traveller Best Restaurant of Australia for last year. I believe the last time was 1997 that a Brisbane restaurant yeah. won. So thank you for flying the flag for us. But how, how does Agnes fit into the timeline, into the development of the restaurant scene in Brisbane? And could it, could it have existed, you know, 20 years ago, say? Mm, I don't know. I think as far as it could have existed 20 years ago, I suppose it could have. Would it have been the same? I'm not sure. I think Agnes is probably very much a restaurant of a time and a place. Oh, that's a very varied and long question, Matt. <laughs> the way it came together was, firstly, Gerard's, I was there for seven years. And I think seven years of cooking the same cuisine was starting to get a little bit long in the tooth for me. Yeah, And I was starting to find that each menu change was getting a little more difficult for me and the heart wasn't really there anymore. It actually took me a long time to realise that because obviously Gerard's was very close to my heart mm. and there was a lot of myself that was put into it. But I just knew I needed another challenge in another way and I really wanted to have a crack of owning something myself um, so that I could have more control over the decision-making process that was happening yeah, and, and just as an evolution, I suppose, you know, I have a young family and... You, you realise when you're in the kitchens for a long time to have freedom of time, you need to own something for yourself that you can manage. But look, Agnes came about, I started talking to Ty. Look, Ty used to eat in Gerard's quite a lot. So he used to come in for the breakfast that we did on the weekends regularly. I'd always be on the pass talking to him. Every time I went to long time to eat when he was running that, he was always on the door and he'd always sit us down. And we sort of just built a little bit of a friendship in that way. But it was a mutual respect of work ethic, I think, that came into it, which which really generated that. And, and as it started to come to me for a change, I just I just hit him up and just said, look, I think if you want if you wanted to and do a restaurant together, I would love to do something with you if you have ever had the compunction to expand. And that planted a seed in his head. And I think over time that just started to take some fruition. And then we just had a meeting sitting down. He said, yeah, let's do something together. And he actually, next door to Agnes, just up the street, there's a, a block of offices and his IT manager, so the guy that runs his IT, had an office there. And he went for a meeting with him. And then he came out and he just got straight on the phone and said, hey, I've got this building. Like, this is the one. We're going to do something here mm -hmm. for sure. Come out and have a look. And I went out and met him. And Agnes at the time, the building that it is now, it looked well, ex externally it kind of looked the same, but internally it was utterly in ruins. And mm. there hadn't been anyone in there for 12 years. The roof, the ceiling had collapsed in parts. And 
you know, but it, it just had so much character and it felt like such an amazing building that I think it's almost the disrepair that it was in with, added to the character for me. And I thought it was this beautiful old space that Brisbane hasn't seen a lot of that. I don't think at the time we realised how difficult it was going to be to actually build the restaurant yeah. and how much work was going to be involved in getting it open. But it was just a great opportunity. Both of us fell in love with it and said, right, this is it. Let's let's do it. And then came the conversations, I guess, about what, what it's going to be. And there's one thing that Ty is very, very good at is understanding how to connect the offering that we have in the restaurant of what it is to the customer and the perception of it. Mm. So it's a streamlining those two things so that the customer can very easily understand what it is they're going it for, going to the restaurant for and what they're going to receive when they're there. He's great with that and he's definitely the voice of the everyman, which is something that I constantly push back against <laughs> <laughs> to, to challenge. But it's I, I think that's part of our success as well that we meet in the middle somewhere that works. But he just kept pushing saying, what's the cuisine going to be? And every time he said it, I'm like, God, seven years of being stuck cooking Middle Eastern. And I know I say it that way now. I loved what yes. we did there for a long time. But it is quite restrictive when you have those parameters around it. And I just thought, I really don't want to be stuck in that. And, it, you know, he was throwing around, do you want to do Mexican? Do you want to do this? Just thinking of those flavor profiles that we're already doing. I just said, what? Well, look, I love cooking on coal. And this building feels so old to me. Why don't we just go one step beyond that and just purely cook on wood fire? And that's it. Let's build a kitchen in there. Feels like it would have been a kitchen from 200 years ago that, you know, would minimize any stainless steel elements or anything new, you know, build the benches from stone and just make it feel like that it's been there for a long, long time. And that was really how it started and what the concept was. And I thought to myself in the back of my mind, that was my path to get to, right, I'm not going to be pigeonholed here. We're going to cook on fire, but we can do any cuisine type as long as it makes sense to cook it over the flames. That's the only thing that's going to restrict us. And then the other thing I liked about it as well is I've always been quite an organic chef cooking cooking from the heart daily and you know recipe books are important and having standard recipes are important but I, I always think that dishes should be in flux and that if you come up with a better way of doing something the next day then you should lean into that and change it mm. it, it, it should it should evolve naturally and it was sort of my kickback against that to myself to say well if we're going to only do fire and there's no other ovens in there, it means that the chefs have to learn to cook intuitively and it's going to be difficult for them to get there, but they'll become better chefs during the process. That was a big thought for me, but you know, the opposite side to that was it's going to be hard work <laughs> maintaining it day to day and it's going to affect the labour costs dramatically, which it kind of did. But I mean, what, can't, what, what came of it in the end, I suppose, when all those pieces come together with Agnes is that it's, it's a very honest restaurant that came from honest ideas that were original ideas it wasn't a restaurant that we're trying to emulate anybody else mm. there are elements of other things i've experienced around the world that have filtered into it but you know we had the luxury from the ground up of really doing exactly what we wanted with the design and exactly how it needed to be from our own ideas from myself and ty and yeah that that's kind of how agnes came to be but but also i think how we got lucky in the end with how it is, is I think that because of the uniqueness of the building, because we left all the walls and finishes exactly as they were, we tried not to touch anything as much as possible. And then anything structurally that we needed to put into support, we just thought, let's just make it as close to black as possible and, and really industrial. So it feels like it's almost a support frame to this existing building that it is. 
all organic decisions as we went, but but what we got in the end with the uniqueness of the space and all these little nooks and crannies and different parts that that have so much character to them is that from what we hear from a lot of customers all the time is that walking into Agnes is quite a transformative experience. You feel like you're not in Brisbane. You feel like you're elsewhere. Mm. You're somewhere else. It's very dark and moody and then you've got the the flame and, I mean, you can always smell Agnes before you uh, walk through the door, that gorgeous smokiness from, from those wood-fired grills. Love that smoke as well. <laughs> Look, and, and as you said with the lighting, with it being dark, that was intentional too. Was, and, and a funny story that we actually got lucky with the COVID lockdown that because I was baking all the way through the night and we hadn't opened the restaurant exposed to the public, I had all this time to sit in the space and absorb how it was working. And we actually changed the light fixtures and the light globes about eight or nine times until we got to the right idea oh, of what gosh. it was. But the, the, but the point we were trying to make with that lighting is that because it's so focused over the tables, we wanted it to feel like you were sitting by a campfire. Mm-hmm. So that was the idea with that lighting that as you eat around it, you feel it's a focused warm light that emulates firelight that you're sitting around a campfire sharing a meal. So that ties into the space of how we're cooking in the background. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I think lighting yeah. is so important and so many restaurants get it wrong. And it it may be that the customer can't actually uh, explain to you what it is, like why they don't necessarily feel that sense of comfort in the restaurant. But it's something I always pay attention to now and I, I notice when it's good and when it's bad because it affects my enjoyment level. Yeah, it does. And that's, look, we're still struggling with it as well, trying to get the, the part right. We, if we can get it perfect, it'll be to the point that people don't have to come and use their torches to read the menus. And I think that's <laughs> the goal for any future venues that we have, that we could get that balance perfectly. Yeah, but the design of restaurants, I, I find that incredibly fascinating and very rewarding. And that's mm. a big part of what I love about what we do now is that I, I get to do that. It's interesting it. how, how many very basic things people get wrong i mean one of the one of the biggest for me is the banquette seating that doesn't line up with the other chairs so you have somebody who's sitting too low or too high at the banquette side of the table compared to the person across the table and it's so uncomfortable i mean having a table that's too low or too high seems like such a small thing but you know it can really affect your experience Oh, definitely. And the other part with the banquet seating is that you don't realise is with time they actually sag. And so yeah. <laughs> you, have it, you have it perfect in the beginning and then yeah. after a year and a half to two years of people sitting in the seats, they actually start to drop a little bit right. um, because of the give. We're actually going through this at Same Same at the moment. That all, the, all the chairs are wicker chairs that mm. are sort of woven mm. and they're all sagging. So at the moment, they're all <laughs> kind of a little too low. We're yeah. in the process of replacing the chairs now to get it right, but it's, it's ever-evolving. Yeah. And, and constant yeah i bet now you have done of course very very well but what about early career mistakes what what do you think you could have done better looking back at your career that's a great question i think one thing i've always done well if older older me could have gone back in past and talking to younger me i think i probably would have made a move on a lot of the things that i wanted to do earlier mm-hmm. i think i'd took a little too long to make decisions. But I think a lot of the mistakes that I've learned in the past have actually been really formative for who I am now. And yeah. I probably wouldn't want to go back and do them differently. And mm. I did make a lot of mistakes. And as a chef, I think a big part is e- ego gets the better of you at a certain point of your career. Mm-hmm. I think young chefs definitely have ego and they, they drive too hard and lean too much into that. But, you know, when I did do that, I definitely 
suffered the consequences of it and they were very good lessons for me and ones that I'm very grateful for. So I probably wouldn't change them. Okay, fair enough. Right, so I want to talk about awards and reviews because, of course, you recently received your award from Gourmet Traveller, which I'm sure that you were very excited about. But yeah. are they always a good thing? There, there have been instances of chefs handing back Michelin stars or, or refusing them. How do you feel about awards? Are they still as relevant as they once were? And do you think the effect on your business is always positive? Yeah, it's a great question. And now it's very much a double-edged sword for me, I guess. it's Awards have been instrumental in the success of my career. And so I have to respect them for that way. And, you know, food writers coming in and enjoying what it is that we're trying to do and then getting that out to the public is incredibly instrumental in the success of a lot of restaurants. And actually to give weight to this is Gerard's in the beginning really didn't work for a long time. And I remember the six-month mark, some nights we'd have 10 customers in and nobody really understood what it was until you actually came in that and reviewed us. And then the good food guide came out and you awarded us. And then all of a sudden, boom, we're a successful restaurant. So, you know, that's really the proof of that, that yes, it is incredibly important. I think in this day and age, it has changed. It's not quite what it was. I don't know if people trust those awards as much. But the other thing is, is look, I'm not an expert in this area, but from what I can hear is, you know, a lot of journalism is demonetized in a lot of way they don't they don't have the money or the resources that they used to have and that's probably affected the publications and how they operate but I, I have an immense respect for what it is that journalists do I'm immensely grateful grateful for the successes that it's afforded me but I really struggle with it and it's I learned at Gerard's I pushed really hard to win a lot of awards and that was a big part of my plan to build up a a portfolio I guess or, or you know get have a presence in people's minds and I knew it would always make it easier in business if you had a name behind and some weight behind what you're doing but what I found in the end was the pursuit of those awards once I sort of hit that peak and I did a drives at a point like we won when we had two chefs hats for a number of years I never thought we were a two hat restaurant I always thought we we're a very good one hat restaurant and that's where we should have been sat and it kind of it does weigh heavy because it changes the customers that are coming in and then it's also you have to maintain and continue to drive for excellence in that way. And back in those days, I was working 80, 90-hour weeks consistently, week in, week out. And you know, I had a young family at home and my wife, who's incredible, sacrificed a lot over the years to enable that to happen. And it, But then you kind of look back at it and, and it hits a point where it's, it's almost a bit of a hollow victory. And then you think, you know, there's a lot that you give up to gain it and that I struggled with that for a number of years and towards the end of drives that was very much front of my mind and you know when we opened Agnes the first thing I said to Ty was I, I don't want to do this for awards and I don't want to be chasing them I just want to do this for customers I want to do it for myself and have something that's brilliant for the staff mm. that we have and build a great culture and look after everybody properly make sure everyone's paid well look after everyone in, in all those ways and and then they start to come again. And it's mm -hmm. kind of the, the award from the Gourmet Traveller was something I never expected in a million years. I never, ever, ever thought that we would receive that award for any of our restaurants. And it was an utter surprise and a shock on the night. It was incredibly welcome. But what I, what I found happened after was, well, firstly, I was very, very pumped for Brisbane. I thought it was yes. un, an unbelievable recognition for Brisbane. And it's something that we are very conscious of driving for with the group at any day, trying to build up 
we're not going to open restaurants in other states. We don't have any plans to do it. We're going to continue to open restaurants here and build up what Brisbane is and defined as a dining destination. So I was incredibly happy about that. But then I remember there was a moment after and I came back to the staff and we had a big meeting and I, you know, we had a bottle of champagne and we popped the champagne. I congratulated everybody on it. And then I was about to go into a bit of a diatribe on, look, it's great that we've won this now, but they're coming now. They're coming and they're, they're going to come. <laughs> Not just the reviewers, but all the other restaurateurs and everybody, they're going to come and try yeah. to pick holes in what it is that we're doing because they want to get that award that we've just won. And I was about to start saying that to them and I stopped myself and I thought, you've got to remember what this means to the staff and how incredibly proud they are and that this is really their victory for how hard they've worked for it and don't take it away from them. And so I, I didn't do that in the end and thought, we'll just keep keep pumping it up. But in the end, I don't think it really matters that much either and I think we just revert back to what it is that we said in the beginning is that we just try to do what it is that we do well. We do it in an honest way and we do it for the customers and we do it for ourselves. I think if you if you cook for customers and not for reviewers, you're going to reach the same end goal anyway. And of course, Ben, we have the people's reviewer, the influencer. Have yeah. they had much of an impact, do you think, on your business successful or otherwise? And what do you think of them? I don't think they've had a lot of impact on us. I've never engaged with them as far as doing contra deals for them and, you know, content for free food and all those sort of things. We, we don't do that at all and we never have, mm. never did. But I, I think I'm probably in a bit of a unique position there. There's a, I actually find they don't ask either. So I don't know if there's something about the way we conduct <laughs> ourselves that deters them to do that. But yeah, we never really had many people asking. We did a few in the early days in Gerard's and I sort of engaged a little bit, but I never really took it very seriously. And yeah, I just think, I just think if, if what it, whatever it is that they want to do in their time, and if that's what they want to do, then more power to them, but you're going to pay for it when you come in. And that's just the way it's going to be. But we've also been in a position where we've never needed to engage with them either, which is a unique position to be in and not one that I take for granted. But yeah, I, I don't think they have that much weight anymore. I mean, but also with with our businesses now, I guess, Agnes, I don't think there's any, you know, everybody that goes to Agnes wants to post about it and everybody's mm. in, in that sphere anyway. So as far as people on Instagram and TikTok that have millions and millions of viewers, it's great to get that content out there and we would take it seriously when they come in as far as, you know, what, goes onto the plate for them has to be perfect but we kind of do that for every customer anyway and I think that's always been my ethos that I try to impart to the chefs is there isn't really any difference between the VVIPs coming in because you should be treating all your customers as VVIPs when they're coming through the door and it's our job to refine our processes to make sure what it is that we do every day is consistent as professionals and, and going out to the highest standard. Obviously, it doesn't always work that way, but it's, it's a goal that we're constantly striving to attain. So they don't have that much influence to me. I don't spend much time thinking about it either, and I'm pretty happy about that. That's a good philosophy. And whatever you're doing definitely works because I have booked in for Agnes in January, and I booked that Amazing. in November. And I have booked yeah. in for a lunch at Same Same in January as well because yeah. it's very hard to get into your restaurants. So congratulations. Agnes was always difficult to get into. Is it even more so since you won the award? Yeah, definitely. It's It's gone 
bananas <laughs> ever since the awards straight away it's gone absolutely bananas to the point where we there was always you know people that we know or people that are friends of ours that if they want to get a table last minute we can always shuffle things around a little bit to make it work that's getting really difficult now mm-hmm. and there's quite a lot of you know vvips and friends of ours and associates that we just can't get tables for anymore when they want which is a great problem to have <laughs> and but it puts an immense pressure on the staff too it's it's been a rough road i think in the funny thing is when that award coincided is we actually had closed Agnes for two weeks, sort of renovations. But what, what we did, we just upgraded the exhaust system in the kitchen so that it was a little bit more robust to protect the venue. And we had some issues with the – we had some old floorboards that we reclaimed from the build that were downstairs in the bar area that the water was getting underneath when we had the heavy rains and was forcing the floorboards up. So we changed those floorboards and did that for a two-week period. But then we won the award the week before we were shutting down. And so then we were shut for two weeks afterwards. But then we were a five-day operation before then. And then after we shut down, we reopened in seven days. And so what happened was <laughs> we were so packed the seven days a week after a two-week break. And we just didn't really have the staff in the kitchen mm. but or, or on the floor to cope with it. And it took a while to get that to where it needed to be. Plus, in the back of my mind, I had the stress of, oh, my God, people are coming in here <laughs> wanting the absolute best. And we are on our knees pretty much as far as stuff goes. So I was, I was back in there every day, day and night prepping with the guys and getting service ready, which I also loved. And I think that was the silver linings of the cloud is that I, I really got back into that mm. kitchen daily. To, to go through that process and work it. Yeah, it was a really rocky road, but uh, I think we handled it pretty well to the best we could and, you know, the, the staff are all better for it. But, yeah, it, it's it's super busy, Nat. Mm, that's <laughs> yeah, great. That's, that is a good problem to have. Ben, how do you get inspiration for your menus, which change frequently? Obviously, you've, you've spoken about drawing on your experience in the industry and the different places you've lived. But on a day-to-day basis, what inspires you? Well, I travel quite a bit now, which is great. And with that award, we're doing a lot of collaborations in other kitchens around the place. I was in Bali a couple of weeks ago, actually for Honto. We did two Honto collaborations at a Japanese restaurant, Yuki in Bali. Mm. It's always great being in other people's kitchens and seeing how yeah. they operate when you invite them into it. That I find that incredibly inspiring and you always take something away from it that travel i love eating at other restaurants i love you always find something but the one thing that's probably changed for me is my approach to food is vastly different to what it was five years ago is that i'm very much less is more Mm. now Mm. and i I think that's probably part of that success too it's you know i guess we've gone back the funny thing is i was thinking about this the other day you know regards to the award that the last time it was won was 1997 phil johnson and then i often think about the food that Phil was doing it, Echo, and how he was championing it. It was very much that. It was less is more on the plate. Two to three elements and just a focus on great seasonality and produce. And that's pretty much what we do. Mm. And so I don't know what's in that. And I don't know if that's something that changes with the times or if it's always been there, but people don't tap into it in a way often. But I, I just think less is more. The better the produce you use, the less you do with it. Have a respect for that, for the plate, Think about how the customer is going to engage with the dish itself, how they're going to eat it, what it partners with, how can you put a point of difference in it to make it interesting so that it's not just the same old boring food that everybody else is doing. There always needs to be that one element that's surprising. Mm. I try to strive for that. That's 
probably my approach to cooking these days, but more so now because I'm across the four venues and the bakery. I'm not in the kitchens as much as I used to be. And so it's really leaning into the head chefs that I've got into the venues and then working with them to push them to embrace that ethos and take it on in a way that I'm not stifling their creativity either Mm. because no head chef of a venue wants an owner chef above them coming in saying, no, you're going to do my food. Mm. I don't think that's the way. I think the key is to find some middle ground between the two. At Agnes, it's different because it's it's very much my baby and there's so much my name attached to it. But I've, I've been very lucky at Agnes that the head chef, Alex, he's been working with me on and off for the last 15 years. When I was at Cha Cha Cha, he was my apprentice there. We worked on and off for many years and you know when he moved to Melbourne for a period he went and worked at Rumi in Brunswick and he really embraced the Middle Eastern cuisine through Joe Bud and a few other people and you know then he was with Movita for a long time and so his food and his palate and my palate are intrinsically tied and, and it works really well for the venue and then you know we got lucky with the sous chef Ryan actually came to us as a COVID victim he got ejected from Europe during COVID mm. he was the sous chef at, at St John in London so he came back to us. He's the sous chef there now. Alex is actually going to leave us early next year to pursue some things for himself, which is great for him and, and very amicable. But Ryan's going to step up into that position. And, and again, Ryan just gets that ethos of less is more on the plate and mm. respect for produce that he learned so much from there. And Ryan actually used to work with Tom Serafian in Melbourne as well, so he's another Middle Eastern chef. So I've just been really lucky with getting these guys with me that seem to have a similar past palate experience to me. Mm. I think, you know, when you're talking about that simplicity, I think from the time of Phil Johnson, we went through this whole change where we equated good food with really complicated food and with transforming it from its original into something different. And I think we we took too seriously the idea of eating with your eyes and forgot about flavour. Now people are just going, we want food tastes good and it tastes of what it is definitely i agree and i I think as far as restaurants go that that's down to the rest of those pieces of the puzzle like we touched on earlier the lighting the decor the feeling that the restaurant is giving you the music and how all those things tie together to add to that experience um Mm. which enables you to serve very simple food yeah i guess the 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 others don't matter that much either i think a really well-cooked simple meal in any environment still has weight yeah, absolutely. For for people who have never been to Agnes or perhaps some of our overseas listeners, how would you describe the cuisine? Oh, God, that's the hardest question. <laughs> I would say it's conceivable to say it's a wood-fired restaurant. I would say it's probably an interpretation of an Australian barbecue restaurant. With Which is very different from an American barbecue, isn't it? We don't do Incredibly all the sauces yeah. and the long cooks and it's just the grilling and i'd say we use we use elements of southeast asia because we're so close to that environment which is what gives birth i guess to the middle the modern australian cuisine but we try to execute the food at agnes with a european feel to it and so it needs to feel like a european restaurant and it needs to feel like european food but with the accents of the multiculturalism of Australia seeping into it. But it's, yeah, it's very much, an exp- it's a theatrical experience is the way that I would say that it's it's less of just the food that we're serving and it's more 
the smell of the restaurant as you walk into it, the music and how that ties into how it makes you feel while you're sitting in the restaurant, the moody elements that tie into the uh, you know the derelict intricacies of the walls and these corners of the building. Mm. And then the other elements of the wine bar downstairs feels completely different to upstairs. I actually prefer sitting in the wine bar to eat at Agnes than I do in the main dining room. I find mm. it a little less chaotic and a bit mm. more like a warm hug. Yeah, I prefer it down there. And then obviously the terrace that we have upstairs is you know, the best way that I think that's used, which is something that we're constantly trying to push onto the customers that are there for that experience is when you get towards the end of the meal, it, it's nice to suggest, would you like to have your desserts up on the terrace if, if the day and weather permits? And we'll usually, the customers that are into it, will we make some limoncello in-house and a few different suggestives to get them up onto the terrace and, and give them a little something from us and that last little exclamation to the experience of... Mm. Uh, you know, looking out over the Fortitude Valley skyline towards the bridge outdoors before you leave. But I guess it's all those different pieces of the puzzle that tie into what makes Agnes great. Yeah. Well, Ben, we both love our city and we love our city's restaurants, but there was a time when Brisbane probably didn't shine as brightly as it does now in terms of cuisine. How do we fall short still today and what Conversely, what do we do well? Another great question. I don't know if I'm going to answer this brilliantly, but I think uh, I think we have all the hallmarks and we have the elements of this being an incredibly great dining city. What we need to bring as restaurateurs to that, I think, is consumer confidence. I'd love to see more of a late-night dining scene happening here. Mm. I think we're working towards it and getting it there. You know, the one thing we don't have in Brisbane is a beach, I guess. I think that's the only thing that really defines it from the other cities. Mm. Melbourne, probably not so much, but, Mm. you know, Sydney and Perth both have incredible beaches. And I I just think because we don't have that, we need to build this uh, a bit more of a cosmopolitan vibe here. But I think what we do really well is that some of the most successful restaurants here have been the ones that lean into that Mediterranean restaurant experience. So you think, you know, what the Kalal has done, the Kalal Hotel and Hellenica that Simon's done there is, you know, we have the climate. It's a warm subtropical environment and that sort of lends itself to a little bit of escapism towards, you know, Greek coastal Mediterranean. And I think that's why the Middle Easterns work so much for me being up here as well is that, you know, Lebanon's very much that environment. And I think we do that quite well and Mm. I think with time and with more operators opening up Brisbane restaurants for Brisbane people that will continue to succeed and strive forward and that's certainly something that we strive for and that it's close to our hearts. We don't want to build restaurants that don't make sense for this time and place and Mm. this city because that's where we are and that's what we want to improve. How do you think the Brisbane diner is different from say a Sydney or Melbourne diner? Brisbane diners are much more chill. There's (laughs) less expectation in that way. They just want to have a good time. That's what I find more and more. They want to be looked after, but they just want to sit down and let their hair down and be themselves and enjoy it and have fun. That's I think Brisbane people just want to have fun. Yeah. I don't want to be told what to do either. (laughs) But but neither do I. So it's easy for me to to encompass that. I think I'm probably the, the stereotypical Brisbane diner. I just want to sit somewhere, <laughs> relax and chill, not think about anything too much and just enjoy the experience of whatever it is that I'm sitting in. I, d- I love being guided by people in a restaurant. I yeah. hate going in a restaurant and ordering for myself. I want them to do it for me mm. and I want to eat 
in the restaurant the way that they've intended it. Leave it up to the chef to decide. I mean, they're always going to give you their best dishes and the things they're most proud of and the things that they feel represent them the best. So mm. they talk to you about the dishes they're presenting or they've informed their staff. That's another bugbear mm. for me is when staff are not informed about the menu and can't answer questions, yeah. even basic questions, or worse, have never tasted anything on the menu. That seems so extraordinary. And I've, I've come across that quite a lot lately, which surprises me. Um, yeah, well, so, so have I. And well, dining with Ty out, it's a massive bugbear for him. He can't stand mm. it. And he's highly critical of front of house everywhere that we go. But I think I think it's it's difficult at the moment just because of the staff shortages yes, that are associated with everything. And and I, I try to be a little lenient in that way. But within our own restaurants, I mean, the big thing that we've done, we've spent a good part of the last 12 months really investing in core training systems and proper inductions for new staff and all of these sort of things that, that are just so integral that we're fortunate enough now with the size that we've become that we can afford to um, put these systems in place. And it, training is everything. Mm. And, you know, wait staff are the conduit for for everything that you're trying to build and put together in the restaurant is that you can spend six months working on anything from the front of house to the back house to an experience of the way this it's going to work that that all comes down to a moment at a table side that somebody has to convey and it's it's difficult to manage but yeah training 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 and i i totally agree with you eating in the restaurants is so integral not even just tasting the food but actually sitting in the restaurant and eating in it from a diner's perspective especially for chefs. I think yeah. it's incredibly important for chefs to do that because Absolutely. otherwise they're just detached and they only see it from the other side and something gets lost. Mm. Speaking about that, I know sort of back in the 80s and 90s, travelling abroad, doing a stage or, you know, work being employed in restaurants overseas was an essential part of being a chef, but it doesn't seem to happen as much anymore. And I understand there are economic pressures and also sometimes I feel like chefs may, young chefs I'm talking about specifically, may feel like they know restaurants and food better because they're absorbing so much of it on social media. But yep. and then and then they're working so hard in their own jobs, they don't get time to eat at other restaurants anymore. So how do they continue learning and growing and being inspired and they just don't have the time or, or money to do that? I totally agree with you and it's it's integral and like i said to you most of my inspiration comes from traveling and i try to do it often mm. to get around and see see what's happening around not to steal ideas from people but really just to get a perspective on who's doing things in a really great way and how can we harness it you're absolutely right but it still exists look we i've got a chef who's been with me from the beginning at agnes he was an apprentice started with us from the opening team when he heard what it was that we were doing before we even opened he was at urbane at the time and he contacted me and said i just want to come and work for you young kid who would have been 20 at the time i look at him that in the years since we've opened he was just struggling in the beginning he found it so difficult mm. you know many many difficult services with him where he just was questioning if you know he wanted to be there or if that this was for him but he now shout out connor blow he is the strongest chef we've had in agnes ever i think he's probably one of the strongest most talented young chefs i've ever worked mm. with gosh that's he constantly surprises me with what he's coming up with, and he is just about to jump on a plane midway through January to go to London to further his career, oh, which good. he does with my full support and full encouragement to get there because I think he's learned everything that he can. And it hurts me because I'd love to keep him because <laughs> he'd be absolutely irreplaceable. <laughs> but 
it has to be done and he has to he has to go and learn it and i think mm. with time and in the right hands he will be better than all of us and it's just my hope that he will come back to brisbane and continue the legacy of building up this city oh fingers crossed what about you ben when you do get time off where do you go to eat in brisbane I am the worst person for this and I don't eat out much at all. I've spent so yeah. much of my parental life missing out on my family that I really spend as much time as I possibly can with my family now. I've got a 15-year-old son. It's almost to the point where he doesn't want to know us anymore. <laughs> and he wants to go and live his own life. So I'm trying to get as much time as possible with him and my 12-year-old daughter. But look, I do eat out a bit. I quite often... We'll meet people after work spontaneously. I'll just go down to Essa because my office is close to there and I'll sit in Essa and have a few snacks at the bar. I love eating at bars mm. more than tables. I'm odd like that. <laughs> but obviously you can only do that in a couple of – when there's two or three of you at most. Mm. But, yeah, I go to Essa quite a bit. I love the food that Phil does there. I love engaging with it and it's super casual. Mm. It's moody and it's all the things that I like about restaurants. I eat at Otto a little bit. With Will over there, I'm just good mates with Will, and I love the simplicity of his food. It's not often that I'll eat there, but you know, if I want to have a nice meal out somewhere, I'll go to Otto sometimes. And Stanley's another one. I love mm. Louis's food, and again, the simplicity is. You know, my favourite things that Louis does is just, you know, steamed coral trout with some soy and a bit of sesame oil and spring onion, and it's really just all about the produce, and it's utterly delicious, and I love it. Mm. The dining experiences that I enjoy most are ones that are consistent. And I'll often have the same dish there, you know. I, yeah, I love going back to places that I know, you know, are, are always good, not too envelope pushing necessarily, just really good food and simple. People are always disappointed if they ask me what my favourite <laughs> restaurants are because they're usually somewhere really simple, you know. They, people yeah. want you to tell them that it's the latest um, place that's opened and how cool it is. But I very much echo that sentiment. You know, another one that I eat quite a lot is often for lunch when I'm here, I'll go down and just get, they do these really great braised white beans at Sunshine on James Street. And mm. I just love going down and getting that and I eat it and I feel great about what I've eaten and myself afterwards <laughs> <laughs> as well. It's guilt-free food. But yeah, that's the other side is, you know, these days I really try to look after my health a lot. You know, I yeah. practically don't drink anymore. I haven't done for the good part of the last year, only on a very rare occasion and train and try to work out as much as possible. It's just, I think 20 years of thrashing my body, I'm trying to finally get mm, something back. Yeah. Ben, what are some of the changes that you've seen in dining since you started out and what kind of trajectory do you think we're going to be following in the future? I think, like you said, it's always, I think there's always a rebellion against whatever the vogue is at the time that happens <laughs> probably on an eight-year cycle. You know, we went through the whole molecular dining thing number of years back and then that sort of evolved back into a much more simple focus what I've, I've noticed eating around a lot in Sydney you see a lot of this Melbourne's starting to go that way slowly but I guess there's all these restaurants that are emulating a New York steakhouse or mm. a seafood place from you know the 40s or 50s and you know these diners you see, I'm seeing more and more of that with very very simple food very old school things are going back to mm. you're seeing souffles back on menus you're seeing you know, Rockefeller oysters and all these classics that nobody would have the guts to do six years ago. They're all <laughs> in vogue now. Mm. I think not many have done that here in Brisbane yet, but I think it's probably coming. I don't know how much life is in it and when it's going to switch back, but they are nice spaces to eat in, but it definitely feels like a 
feels like a, a of the day thing, I mm. guess. I don't know if it'll have legs for a long time. I wonder if we're going to see the big white plates with the tiny little portions of Nouvelle Cuisine come back anytime. It just may. Matt, I don't know if I'll be heroing it, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just may come back. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's always a place for the for the antithesis to whatever the vogue is at the time as well, you know. Yeah. You know. So you've done very well starting off as a young chef and, and going through your career, building up your career and now as a, a business owner, what advice would you give to people who are starting out with their own restaurant? Yeah, I think... The, well, starting their own restaurant, take the numbers seriously, I think is something that's very important. Be realistic about your budgets. Mm. Look, the other one is I, I realized pretty early, you know, when I was thinking of leaving Gerard's, I actually had some opportunities to go and do something completely on my own, but I realized I would not succeed if it was only myself. There's too much that I don't know about the way the front of house works. And my advice would be don't try to do everything yourself. Try and align yourself with people that offset your weaknesses and prop up your strengths is the best advice. It's difficult to do it on your own. Yeah, you will need help. and Make sure you have the right people giving you the right advice that have your back and you trust. That is very good advice. And Ben, what about you? I, I've got this feeling in my gut that there's going to be a new venue coming soon is it is that right or not there there is definitely something coming next year i can't give away too much of it now but i what i can tell you we have a project that is happening i'm very excited about it i'm also incredibly nervous about it Mm. um, which i think is a good thing but it's it's a very big project yeah it'll, it'll be something new for the city for brisbane i can tell you it will be in the cbd we're moving away from the valley to do something new and again something that we're doing in the incredible building we found a great building that i'm very excited about and when the time is right we will let everybody know what it's going to be and how it's going to work but it will definitely be a game changer wow i am i'm so intrigued and i might have to put in the thumbtacks <laughs> off air to try and get some more information from you ben, about yeah. that well thank you so much for chatting with me today it's it's been a pleasure as it always is to talk with you and i am very much looking forward to my dinners at same same and agnes great thanks Nat. it's always a pleasure talking to you as well and thanks for having me on the podcast it's been my pleasure Well, thank you to listeners for joining me for another episode of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. I will put a link to Agnes, same, same, and Ben's other restaurants on the website. That's it for this episode. So wherever you are in the world, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you'd like to help support Extra Virgin and keep us ad-free, please consider buying us a virtual coffee on the website, www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com.